Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Pandemic trends here in the United States are really trending in the right direction. Pandemic uh, is on its back foot as vaccinations continue to rise. And then, of course, we had from the CDC yesterday relaxed uh, mask requirements. And that is good news for a lot of business. And Taylor, you were saying you can't even get a, a spot in a Pilates class in the city, right? I know. You know, they're booked at full capacity and hear. everyone is jammed back. I had to hurry and rush to get my <laughs> spot. So like everyone else. That is good to hear. So I tell you, another group of businesses that need uh, this economy to reopen is the hotel business. Let's talk about that. Jay Stein, he's the chief executive officer for the Dream Hotel Group. Jay, thanks so much for joining us here. Would love to get your thoughts as to where we are right now with your hotel business vis-a-vis -vis maybe six months ago. Uh, thanks, Paul. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so good progress in the last six months uh, nationally. Uh, New York City just starting to make some progress. Uh, as you know, we're opening up uh, two, new, uh, two new hotels this month, uh, or reopening, I should say, the Dream Midtown and uh, the Dream Downtown. Dream Midtown actually opens today, so we're thrilled to... Uh, I'm um, here with the with the staff and welcoming back employees that have been furloughed for over a year. It's just so nice to see their faces. And we'll do the same thing about 10 days later for the Dream Downtown crew. And then we have two more hotels that are closed, the Chatwall and the Time, which we hope to have open maybe in the next 60 days as well. So a lot of things moving in New York. Uh, still a long way to go uh, to build the occupancies back up to reasonable levels. Uh, but certainly we're starting to see a little bit of light. Uh, at the end of the this point. You know, it was interesting. We heard from Airbnb last night uh, and, and really highlighting that the urban tourist has not quite come back. We're still doing a lot of vacation homes outside big cities. When are you hoping that that urban tourist really does come back? Yeah, I, I would disagree with that. I mean, I certainly, they're not back to the sense where they're back all the way, but Certainly, it is moving in, in other markets. New York is just starting, but Miami, as I'm sure you've heard stories, is is very strong uh, in our urban product of the Dream in South Beach. The Dream in Nashville uh, really started to bounce back. Uh, food and beverage, very strong, but also on the room side, back over 50%, 60% levels now. Uh, and the Dream in Hollywood as well. We're seeing good traction in L.A. starting to, uh, to move. So uh, I, I think that you are starting to see people coming back to the urban centers uh, and as museums start to uh, reopen in, in larger percentages, baseball games and, and all those kinds of things, certainly with restaurants and a lot of relaxation there and the amount of people, uh, it's a big attraction to come to New York. And certainly when we get Broadway open in September, uh, it's going to be a game changer. So, Jay, what, what is your expectation for New York? New York? I'm sure those are obviously key, key properties for you. How do you expect the occupancy to ramp up based upon maybe some of your experience in some of your other markets? Yeah, you know, a little tough to say. Uh, nobody really knows. I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think people want to come to New York. One, just you know, for the fun of it. But you know, there's eight million people that people need to come and visit um, that they haven't seen in a long time, family and friends. So I think uh, we may be a little surprised. And uh, with beautiful weather, uh, this was always one of the, the best times of the year to be in the city. Uh, I think we'll start to see uh, the numbers rebound. And hopefully by the fall, we start creeping back up into those 
uh, 60%, 70%. You know, we normally run 90% here in New York, which is Mm. 20% higher than the rest of the country. So it's just a very different market in general. You know, we have to talk about the labor shortage going on right now. Are your employees coming back to work, or do you have to incentivize them with higher pay? You know, we're just starting here in New York, so uh, we haven't had too much difficulty. But we're bringing back a very small staff. We're, you know, we'll probably only be in the 20 to 30 percent occupancy range in, in the first month. So that's, you know, a third of what we normally do. And so there'll be a much, much, much fewer employees than normal. But nationally, uh, it's very difficult getting employees. And I'm sure you're hearing that every day. Uh, and, and it was tough in some of our markets before COVID, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, but now, and I'm sure it has to do with the enhanced uh, unemployment and stimulus and things like that, certainly play a part of it. Um, so, yeah, labor is a very, very uh, difficult uh, aspect for our industry right now. What is the business like in your Miami hotel? Is it back to normal? I see, I see, watch the news every night for months, and these people are parting like there is no pandemic. So how's your hotel doing down there? Yeah, so I wouldn't say it's like there's no pandemic. I mean, you do see those. That's what you see on TV because they interview certain people. But I was there yesterday. I was at the Dream in, in, in Miami for the whole day. I was in the, the Durham Unscripted yesterday, a day Love before that. that. And I've been traveling all over, uh, all over to all of our properties. Uh, but Miami is definitely the highest demand uh, right now. Um, you know, people eating indoors without masks, that's the same thing you have in New York City. Yep. So it's not like it's, you know, the wild, wild west out there, <laughs> the, the way people describe it. It's really not. What's it been like traveling on the planes and stuff? Um, for the most part, I've been on a lot of flights, four flights in the last three days. Um, and last week I was on four flights as well. I was in Louisville. I was in Nashville. Um, went through Atlanta, went through All Detroit. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's uh, a lot of people. Move. I was shocked. I had to go through Charlotte yesterday. It looked completely normal in the, uh, mm-hmm. in the terminal itself. Right. It okay. Back. All right. Busy. Most people uh, being very uh, courteous and wearing the mask. A couple yep. people taking a little, little little bit of liberties with that. But All right. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll hopefully uh, we'll, we can continue this reopening in a safe way and, and get folks back out there. Jay Stein, Chief Executive Officer of the Dream Hotel Group. They're opening uh, one of their New York properties today and another one on the 26th. So it's good to see properties here in New York City coming back. This is Bloomberg. It seems like the discussion has moved from the pandemic to vaccinations and now this week it seems to be mask or no mask that seems to be where the conversation's going let's get the latest on all of these issues with lauren sauer we always appreciate her giving us some time every week lauren sauer is the associate professor of emergency medicine at the johns hopkins school of medicine i should know that the bloomberg school of public health at johns hopkins is supported by michael r bloomberg founder of bloomberg lp and bloomberg philanthropies and this radio and tv operation So, Lauren, we're having the CDC update their, I guess, their mask mandate. So if you're fully vaccinated, you don't really have to wear a mask in most situations. Do you think that's the right message? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the CDC is continuing to get data and and that is in turn influencing their policies. And we're seeing it happen rapidly, right, like in real time. I think for me, the message doesn't change much as, as we think about how we are going to actually evaluate whether people are vaccinated or not. And so until we have a system in which we have higher coverage, we have lower incidence, and we know who's vaccinated, I don't see this 
um, changing at least my personal behavior and probably many cities, states, and, and, and companies' behaviors and policies on masking. Lauren, can you help me understand how do eight fully vaccinated members of the Yankees baseball team test positive for COVID? Yeah, it's a great question. I think what we're seeing is breakthrough cases. And so what we're going to look to hear from the Yankees or from, um, you know, the health department that's going to be managing those breakthrough cases is, was it a variant strain? Um, what vaccine did the Yankees use? Um, what were what were their contacts like? Um, that contact tracing is going to become very important. And, and are, did they become sick? Um, and that those are all going to be important questions that we, as we continue to evaluate both our vaccine efficacy and how we strategize the use of these other public health activities like masking, like social distancing, um, these breakthrough cases become important, you know, data points that we will continue to use to influence our policy. Lauren, do you think, you know, I was just looking at a story, re, uh, talking about a story on air about Wynn Resorts, the casino company, they're reopening and they're dropping their mask mandate and they're basically saying it's on the honor system. To me, I guess that's probably how it has to go, don't you think? And how do you think about the vaccinated folks versus non-vaccinated folks and identifying one another? Yeah, I think it's a really hard question. Um and I, I think it ends up being where you as the individual have to make that choice about whether or not you're comfortable wearing your mask if you've been vaccinated, you know, taking off your mask if you've been vaccinated, and also if you're even comfortable being in places where masks aren't required anymore. Um, it's going to be a really hard and new space for the public and local governments and businesses to navigate Um I think the honor system is all we have right now. Um, and until we find a sort of ethical and appropriate way to do this otherwise, that's what we're going to be stuck with. But I do think that um, there are going to be people who just don't want to wear a mask anymore um, and will make that decision because they feel like they can, independent of their vaccine status. And so people who feel less safe, um, people like frontline health workers, people like other frontline workers, like restaurants, sanitation, things like that, are going to be affected by this to a degree. And similar news, Paul, Las Vegas Sands also saying that they are not requiring vaccinated guests to wear masks. So Vegas, you, Vegas leading the way. Vegas <laughs> is open, baby. That's all you have to, to say. Lauren, just sort of square with me maybe some of the mixed messages. I was on an airplane and they said no. Up and through at least September for now you have to wear a mask. Amtrak, some of the subways. So we're getting some of the CDC guidance. But then, of course, if you're on an airplane, the rules are a little different. But how is the coordination going? Yeah, I think we have some work to do in the coordination setting, exactly as you're um, suggesting. And a lot of it is about communication and messaging. So, um we don't really know the full data on airplanes and the risk of transmission. There's been a lot of work done in this space, same with other public transportation areas like subway cars and trains. And so when you're in those close quarters, masking does still seem appropriate. And we're continuing to learn about those spaces as these sort of natural experiments happen. Um, but I think the reason you're still seeing that requirement um, and those policies is because we don't fully understand the transmission dynamics in that space. And because we know that that people can't really truly sit, you know, six feet apart, that we, we want to keep them masked and safe, as safe as possible. And this is a relatively easy, relatively harmless way to do that. 
We appreciate you coming in every week, Lauren, and helping us kind of really understand what's going on with this pandemic and with the vaccines. Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And I should note again that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and Bloomberg Radio and Television. Well, if you can flash back just, you know, four or five days ago, the market was really concerned about inflation and not just the transitory uh, kind as well. But uh, and that was some really weakness in the market. We've had a couple of days, very strong rebounds here, kind of clawing back some of those losses from the earlier in the week. But the question is, where do we go from here? Let's check in with Jeff Carbone. He's co-founder and managing partner of Cornerstone Wealth. They have about one point two billion dollars in assets under management. So. Jeff, kind of a seesaw type of week here. Started off very weak, had some real concerns about maybe this economy is overheating. That might prompt the Fed to step in a little bit, but not so much over the past couple of days. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, no, good morning, Paul. Yeah, we certainly, the uh, predominant risk of inflation and uh, it certainly started the week off and kind of maybe we were going, we were coming down that roller coaster and now we're moving back up, right? We're still down probably two and a half percent for the week, uh, but we've had a good recovery. Um, from the early part, and yeah, like I think as you mentioned, it was that fear of you know, the market maybe was expecting transitory risk, and we were not on that court. Uh, we we think there's more concern of inflationary pressure, but beyond that, uh, you got to look at you know the Fed and what the Fed's going to do, and it's almost that Goldilocks theory, right? Because the Fed is under the pressure of if they let the market overheat too much, we get too much inflation. Inflation runs hot. Um, if they move too slow. We're a little bit behind and things fall and, you know, they got to just do it just right, right? We need it to be perfect and it's going to be that induced, Fed-induced language, right? we got to see what they're going to say. It's gonna, that's the importance that we're watching right now. You know, Jeff, you, you're hitting on a point that I want to go next. I read a Bloomberg Opinion article from Muhammad Alarian earlier this week, and he hinted that the Fed is really doing us a disservice by insisting and insisting and insisting that inflation is transitory and leaving no room for anything else. And he comes out and says that instead of looking at a single baseline, they should be looking at a range of scenarios and not be holding this single baseline to a degree of conviction that isn't supported right now in some of the data. Is the Fed doing us a little bit of a disservice? I, I believe so. And I, you know, I watch Muhammad and talk to him and really keep a close eye on what he does because he's brilliant. So you know, in the Fed, and, and the Fed's forgetting that every major crash in history has been preceded by the Fed tightening, right? And there, so the language is so, again, going back to the messaging is so important. Um, you know, we've taped, we've continued to taper, what, $120 billion per month. We can probably start pulling off the, I mean, the economy is heating. It's heated up, right? We've had that big recovery. We can certainly lay off the, put a little bit of the, take off the gas a bit and maybe start by tapering a little, um, maybe not immediately, but we need to have the plan to do so because, yeah, this is that tra we don't transitory inflation is not there. Go, you know, look at the gas pumps, look at food. We can see the, you know, the, some of the um, with other commodities, whether it be corn, etc. The prices are rising, so inflation is definitely out there, a lot stronger than they're they, they may be seeing. So we definitely have a different differing opinion between uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen and uh, Jerome Powell. Uh, uh, on the Fed. So we're, we're, we're seeing more inflationary pressure and we're, we're starting to get concerned about it right now. And that's why we're, we're backing off a bit. We're, we're taking some of the uh, higher beta positions and going a little bit more conservative right now. All right. Talk to us, Jeff, about where you're going, where you think your clients should be going if, in fact, 
uh, we are, you know, kind of facing potentially some tapering, if not uh, outright rate increases. Uh, yeah, so, so Paul, we've been, you know, I think when I sent some notes, you know, we've been moving a little bit out of those uh, uh, reopening trades, although Norwegian Cruise Line this morning is having a really good day, and but at the same time, you've, we're seeing Disney not so good, right? So we've really moved away from some of those reopening um, and high beta positions, trying to go a little higher quality. We're moving up, you know, quality, big names, higher market cap, and really important for us is cash flow, right? We want to see really good cash flows. Where do you go? What sectors? We like continue to like industrials. We still like the financials, especially uh, regionals and some brokerage. Uh, we do think that's a good space in this economy. Uh, energy, and uh, we're adding some healthcare back in at this point. Are you moving up in credit quality as well? Absolutely. Yeah, we definitely better quality. I think it's high quality around the board, across the board, right? Um, the, you, know, the, you can move on from uh, credit quality, not just in our equity positions, but credit quality within the uh, the bonds that we're holding as well. And you know, with the bond market, that's a, that's the toughest place to be right now. With uh, I think we got the aggregate bond index down what two and a half percent for the year. Um, we're losing money, and then. Um, on our on the bond side and then try to find some place in cash it's that losing money safely position because hmm. uh inflation is somewhere you call it one seven to two percent and we're getting in the banks less than right. you know if we're lucky 10 basis points if if we could find it somewhere so yeah it's, it's definitely a, a that fixed income market is a, yep. is a tough tough place to be right now all right jeff hey thanks so much for joining us we really appreciate getting your thoughts on these markets here jeff carbone He's co-founder and managing partner for Cornerstone Wealth. Uh, again, we started off this uh, market uh, on uh, this week on a very down note, uh, retracing some of those losses here in the past couple of days. We'll keep you up to date on those markets. Right now, though, we want to talk crypto. What a wild week it's been for crypto, Taylor. It's almost been like the Elon Musk effect. Does he does Elon like crypto? Does Elon not like crypto? And I think we're back to uh, Elon likes crypto, but it's certainly been a volatile week for the crypto space. And I suspect the people that traffic there and trade there and invest there are, are used to that. John Wu, he's a president of Ava Labs. Uh, he joins us once again to kind of get us the latest on what is going on with crypto. And I guess one of the interesting stories, John, was... You know, Elon initially saying, maybe I'm not really supporting crypto because the whole ESG issue, it takes too much power to mine crypto. What's your view of that whole storyline? Hey, Paul. Hey, Taylor. So, you know, Elon is has a flair for the dramatic, obviously, but that statement where he said he's no longer accepting Bitcoin for transactions in terms of buying Tesla, actually was uh, killing three birds with one stone. And it was quite brilliant on his part because there's no one buying Teslas right now <laughs> using Bitcoin. There's tax implications. And, and obviously, when there are transactions happening, you do need to you know mine and, and validate and secure all of this. And that does require a lot of energy. So in one statement, he basically kept his green initiative. He also did not hurt his Tesla sales. And he really, like, you know, was actually kind of a brilliant statement. And, and he's got that flair for the dramatic. So good for him. Um, but his point is correct. There is a lot of wasteful spend when you have Bitcoin and mining. And that's because you basically, for every transaction, you ultimately need to secure, validate, and create a next block. Right now, the energy consumption 
in the Bitcoin ecosystem is roughly 120 or 130 terawatts an hour per year. And people have said that's the equivalent of the consumption of countries like Argentina or Norway. So that's a lot of consumption. And a lot of that is carbon uh, footprints that are just, you know, not very green. So he has a lot of good points. What's even worse is the way this works is it's not necessary. You know, the, the proof of work concept for mining in Bitcoin is you have to solve math problems in order to have the right to create the next block. But the way it's set up, it's almost like a lottery system. So the more chances you have, the more likely you're rewarded Bitcoin and given the right to create the next block. Now, that means you need more computing power, you need more hardware, and you need to consume more energy. This is all useless work. There is no reason for this. It's just mining companies competing against each other. It doesn't make the securing and the validating of transactions and creating a next block more efficient. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of this is just useless work. John, though, there was some pushback after the Elon Musk tweet. Many people who are bullish on crypto, I believe Mike Novogratz, right, of Galaxy, someone that we speak with frequently, a lot of other millionaires and billionaires and investors said that, yeah, it might use some carbon now, but the future is renewable energy and we're working on getting there. Does that have any validation to it that eventually it can become a positive, renewable way to mine? It's better, but even if it's renewable, it's still displacing um, the use for other things that you need to consume energy. So it's better for sure. And there is carbon, there's wind power, but it's still displacing you know, um, the need for, uh, to use energy for other things. So, John, you mentioned, or you, you mentioned that the current way that crypto is being mined is not the most efficient. What are some more efficient ways that you think this industry needs to go towards? Well, I think a lot of the newer blockchains are using a proof-of-stake method, which is a much more an improved way of doing things because it's literally like one millionth of the times more efficient. Um, and, and instead of using physical hardware and mining and using energy to secure and validate, you're effectively putting your coin or putting up, you know, security deposit, think of it, for the right to vote and the right to secure the the blocks and the transactions. And that is literally so much more efficient way and there's no useless work, so to speak. John, you mentioned something at the beginning of your first answer about the tax implications. And this brings up the question about what is Bitcoin, what is the real value? Is it a store of value or is it a form of payment? And that tax issue this week has brought up a lot of conversations about, well, maybe that's why you don't use it to pay. You keep it as a store of value, right? What is the use case for Bitcoin? It is a store of value. It is the, it's taking share from the $9 trillion of gold that's out there. And that is the number one use case. There are new blockchains that are far more efficient, more green, and have the ability for utility. There's a budding ecosystem of other blockchains that have actual use cases on top of their blockchains. John, if one of our listeners wanted to get exposure to just this whole crypto thing, how would you recommend they do it? Do they buy a piece of Bitcoin? Or is it- is there, what do you think is the best way to do that? 
Well, listen, I still agree with Mike Novogratz that Bitcoin is going to go a lot higher. Um, you know, Bitcoin right now is still used as a store of value. And, you know, the whole space is uh, $2 trillion, and, and Bitcoin is only like 40% of that. And again, gold is $9 trillion, And every single last year, I think there was um, close to like $50 billion in new inflow into gold. And um, a lot of that is going to come into Bitcoin over the over the years. So first of all, I still agree with him that Bitcoin is going to go higher. But to get exposure to the space, more and more people are now looking below the fold, so to speak, I was like when you search. It is not just about Bitcoin and Ethereum. There are other blockchain ecosystems that are actually thriving. Ava Labs, the, the place I work at, the software company that, that launched Ava Lance, the blockchain, we already have a more efi- even more efficient than Ethereum in terms of uh, a greenness, if you will, and, and has the, the characteristics that we all desire for better utility, which is scale, no latency whatsoever in closing a transaction, as well as the ability to have very low prices for a transaction. So for investors, I would definitely look at new things that are coming up that are inflecting right now, because part of the reason, let's be honest, Paul, people want to get into this because they've seen the great returns in some of the top coins. Uh, and that's really like the first two right now, Ethereum and, and Bitcoin. But if you want to find the next ones, you've got to look at who's got the most utility going forward. And they should look, um, you know, below the top two. John, it was interesting, the timing of all of this. Uh, we did hear yesterday that Colonial Pipeline did indeed pay their ransom of $5 million to get that pipeline back up and running. And well, they paid it in crypto. And we had a conversation earlier with Tim O'Brien of our Bloomberg Opinion saying that other people indeed have paid and they've all been requesting Bitcoin and cryptos. Everyone says, well, there's a form of payment, there's a paper trail, so it's actually really good. But I'm not seeing anyone who's paying ransom in crypto being brought to justice here. Is there a paper trail? Then if so, why are ransom um, attackers asking to be paid in crypto? Well, there is some, it's pseudonymity. It's not true anonymity and it is global. So it makes it, you know, uh, a little separated from other financial systems. So it does, because it's borderless, it's harder for jurisdictions to go after certain people, but it is you can, if you really want to do the work, attach um, the actual people behind it. Um, just like any other form of payment, my understanding, looking at studies done from very reputable firms, the percentage of fraud that is in crypto is really not more than any other system. It just gets highlighted because of the crypto nature and, and the association of the early days. Hey, John, Wall Street and has a new sheriff in town, Gary Gensler at the SEC. This is a market, when I think about crypto, that is just crying out for some regulation that we're just one blow up away from somebody saying, hey, isn't somebody looking at this? What do you think, how do you think the regulatory framework is going to develop or evolve uh, around all things crypto going forward? So having been in this space for a long time, the regulatory framework has actually already evolved and it's getting better every single day. There's no doubt there's still a lot of gray area and uh, the Gary and the new SEC uh, commissioners need to continue to give guidance. But I think we're getting better every single day. I mean, you remember in 2017 with the ICO boom, 
Um, that led to the SEC coming in defining what needs to be done. And things are done a lot better than they used to be. So it is getting better every single day, but the industry is still relatively new. Um, you know, Bitcoin's been around for 11 years. Ethereum's only been around for like less than half of that. And then you have all of these new coins. But the more important thing is there's a lot of development. And Paul, you know, this is the same as the Internet days. The early adopters for the Internet usage yep. was really not the, the, the best people, if you will. However, as that showed the capabilities and the potential of the Internet, same way uh, the uh, early guys in crypto have done it and the potential for future use cases and disintermediation and the, the positive utility that had come out of this, more and more intellectual capital is moving into the space. Some of the smartest and brightest kids from various great universities are coming to me every single day and wanting to join our firm and other similar firms. So just like we couldn't figure out in, in the late 90s when we can have streaming video, a lot of things that we can't figure out exactly right now, they're on the come. Hey, John, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking your time. You always help us kind of get a little bit more clarity on this crypto market. It's new to so many people. John Wu, president of Ava Labs. They're based in New York City, and he's been doing this for a long time. And uh, it's interesting, you know, what's happened. One of the things during this pandemic, um, Taylor, is my increased use of electronic banking. Okay, welcome okay, to so the 21st thank century, Thank you. Paul. I know my – and it's just <laughs> – you're kind of forced to, and mm -hmm. you get more and more comfortable with it, as, as we all do with all the new apps and new technologies. But it's going to be interesting to see how crypto comes into you know the consumer experience. 100%. I was joking on TV yesterday in the afternoon hours, and my dad texted me and said, okay, give me your thoughts on crypto. And I thought, oh, that might be the sell signal. Dad's getting involved here. Uh, but no, all joking aside, I mean, more and more mainstream, right? We talk about Coinbase, uh, Paul, and, yep. and trying to make it easy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.